Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught. I am the content director and the host of this show. And I'm here with Bishop Robert Barron from Los Angeles this time, not Santa Barbara. Welcome, Bishop. Yeah, hi, Brandon. I'm down here. We have a bishop's meeting this morning. So I came in last night, and this is uh, my room here at the, at the cathedral. And, uh, you know, so I'll be doing the meeting and then heading right back up because, you know, it's starting uh, tomorrow. Confirmation, Confirmation season. season begins. So I've got two confirmations Saturday and then one on Sunday. So we're, <laughs> we're getting going. Well, big update here. Um, the event that so many people had been waiting for finally happened. Namely, you got together with Dr. Jordan B. Peterson for a long conversation about an hour and 45 minutes. Now, in next week's podcast episode, we're going to break down that conversation and discuss the content of it. But maybe give us a light teaser. How did you feel like it went from your perspective? Oh, it was a great joy. We did a, a Skype thing. You know, we were together. But, you know, the great thing with this technology like we're doing right now is you feel like you're just in the same room with somebody. And uh, he was in a, a very, you know, I think a kind of gentle frame of mind. And uh, we never met uh, before. And we, I think we just hit it off pretty well. And, you know, I, I'm quite acquainted with his writings. And so I know a lot of his themes. Um, and I thought it was a fascinating conversation. As you say, it was long. It was, it was, see, it was right around lunchtime on my calendar. I think in his case, he was in Toronto, so three hours ahead of me. Uh, so it was like maybe four in the afternoon or something. But uh, we had a good conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. So again, stay tuned for next week. We're going to yeah. play clips from the episode. We'll we'll break it down. I'm not sure exactly when it's supposed to release. So maybe by the time this podcast is airing, it's already gone out there. But we'll break it down next week. Yeah. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a viral article from the New York Times. It's been making lots of waves on the internet, both positive and negative. It was written by a man named Peter Attaton. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's a professor of philosophy at San Diego State University. And he wrote this piece in the New York Times titled, A God Problem. And the subtitle said, perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing. The idea of the deity that most Westerners accept is actually not coherent. And thank goodness that in the year 2019, it's finally being revealed to us that God is incoherent. Uh, Bishop, first of all, I want to walk through different pieces of this article with you. The very beginning, he says... Wait, okay, let me say something first, though, Brandon, oh, because it, I think you you were insinuating quite correctly that there's something breathtakingly arrogant about a claim like that. So a professor in 2019 suddenly discovers that the central idea of Western culture, which has been thought through by some of the greatest minds in the last 2,000 years, oh, it's incoherent. Oh, and I, I, I'm a professor at San Diego State, and I figured this out. I mean, just on the surface of it, how how irresponsible and, and as I say, breathtakingly arrogant that claim is. Uh, no one's thought about these things before. And as we'll see, every issue he raises, you know, if I were teaching philosophy of God 101, in the first couple of weeks, I might raise some of these issues. And not to trivialize them, but to say, we have thought about these things, you know. In fact, some of the greatest spirits in the West have thought very deeply about these things. And so just that kind of cavalier, let me toss off in a newspaper article, my conclusion that, oh, the idea of God is incoherent. I mean, just give me a break. I'll just say that at the outset. Now, to be <laughs> to be fair, I'm not sure if Peter himself would have written this, this subtitle to the headline. Maybe it was some New York Times person looking for clickbaity content. Um, but I, I think the whole article does carry that sort of idea that yeah. actually the God you've believed in for a long time really doesn't make sense. 
Um, okay, so he starts off this way. He says, if you look up God in a dictionary, the first entry you will find will be something along the lines of this, quote, a being believed to be the infinitely perfect, wise, and powerful creator and ruler of the universe, end quote. Anything wrong immediately with that definition of God? Well, sort of in a superficial or conventional sense, no, because all those attributes, infinitely perfect, wise, powerful, creator, ruler, I mean, all that is, is valid. Anyone that's listened to me over the years knows that right away, I'm going to get balky when it comes to calling God a being. Because the minute you do that, now you're going to be in trouble. And in fact, some of the anomalies that, that are raised come precisely from that problem of seeing God as one instance of the category being alongside of others. When you do that, anomalies will arise. God is best not described as a being, as though he's, he's the greatest instance of the category of being but rather is ipsum esse. So uh, keep all the, all the um, uh, attributes. Those are all valid, but don't call God a being. Call God the, the source of existence or, or being itself, if you want. Um, so that's, I, I would add that little qualification. So then Peter focuses on two attributes of God throughout the rest of the article that he thinks are internally incoherent. So one of them is omnipotence, meaning God's all-powerful, the other one is omniscience, meaning God is all-knowing. So let's look at those one at a time. So in regards to omnipotence, here's what he says. He says, as a philosopher myself, I'd like to focus on a specific question. Does the idea of a morally perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing God make sense? Does it hold together when we examine it logically? Let's first consider the attribute of omnipotence. He says, can God create a stone that cannot be lifted? Uh have you heard that before, Bishop? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a completely sophomoric observation. I think he does, doesn't he, in the course of the article, you know, say, well, I, I know people have, have uh, solved this problem. But it's utterly sophomoric. Uh, and indeed, I've heard sophomores in high school raise that objection. You know, the problem there is that you can play a sort of grammatical or verbal trick. Like you can formulate the sentence, a stone so big that even God can't lift it, Right. But that's like saying a, a, a square triangle. That's simply a, it's a contradiction. To say God can do all things, that's true. A, a stone so big that even God can't lift it is a logical contradiction. It's a type of non-being. It's like saying, well, God can't make a, a square circle. Well, what does that tell you? Precisely nothing. Because a square circle is a type of non-being. So it's a, we're tricked by our language into thinking, oh, this is a philosophical anomaly. In fact, it's just a peculiarity of language. So he does respond after that. He said, Thomas Aquinas, one of the great philosophers, says that we should actually clarify that God's omnipotence means he can't do what's logically impossible, or to say yeah. it another way, he can only do what's logically possible. And so like you say, a stone too big for God to lift isn't logically possible. But uh, Peter says, even if we accept for the sake of argument Aquinas's explanation, there are still other problems to deal with. For example, can God create a world in which evil does not exist? This does appear to be logically possible. Presumably, God could, could have created such a world without contradiction. It evidently would be a world very different from the one we currently inhabit, but a possible world all the same. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, fair enough. But the, the bottom line is we don't really know. I mean, could God have made such a world? Yeah, I suppose. How come he didn't? I don't know. 
And there's no contradiction there. It's in other words, all we're acknowledging there is that we don't have an absolutely infinite thorough grasp of the entire intentionality of God. So I can't see why God made the world the way he did. Well, so what? It's like a little tiny, tiny child not being able to understand the way his parents have arranged things. And, you know, they could have done this differently, the child's going to say. Well, yeah, I, sure, logically. Do we believe, for example, that in the heavenly realm, there's something like a world that's finite, made up of, of, of you know, numerous beings, but yet in harmony and order? Uh, yeah. Why does God want to place that at the end of a long process? Well, I don't know. God seems to like long processes. He seems to like the unfolding of things across space and time. But, you know, all that is, Brandon, that's just me speculating. I'm like, but what do I know? But see, in a way, who cares? That, that doesn't cut to the heart of the matter as though this is some profound contradiction. It just means I can't fully grasp the intentionality and purpose of God. But why should that surprise me? I've got this little tiny finite mind, you know? So I don't see a, a, any sort of anomaly or contradiction whatsoever to look around and say, well, why didn't God do this differently? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but how would I be expected to know such a thing? But it certainly doesn't involve any anomaly on, on the God side of that equation. The, the tension comes from our side of the equation that we can't fully grasp these things. But that's no, no challenge to the idea of God. I notice the way he framed that question. He says, for example, can God create a world in which evil does not exist? And he says that's logically possible. But what he didn't say was, could God create a world with creatures that have free will in which evil doesn't exist? Because I'm not sure that that is logically possible. You could create just a world with non-living beings that yeah, had sure. no evil. Um, but I think the more interesting question, which brings us to the problem of evil that people have wrestled with for centuries, is the one, wh why didn't God create a world that had living beings, but no evil? And I, I think a lot of thinkers have said, well, that, that's not logically possible. If you have free will, evil must be a possibility. Well, yeah, but I, I would say this, that we can we affirm the existence of, of heaven, which is a finite realm made up of free creatures in which there is no sin. And so is that possible? Can God um, so lure freedom so completely that that sort of world exists? And I think, yeah, I hope so. That's that's my hope for, for heaven. Now, well, why didn't God just make heaven from the beginning? See, that would be the question. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know why God didn't do that from the beginning. Uh, we say that God, for example, uh, gave Mary this full range of, of grace so that Mary is even you know free from the stain of original sin. Well, why didn't God do that for everybody? I don't know. I really don't know. How do you expect me to know? Uh, is it God's will that somehow we're gradually drawn to this state of being? Does he give some people special graces? Yeah, seems to. But what's the ultimate meaning? And I, I don't know entirely. But that's our problem, not God's problem. That's my point. That's that's a problem from the sort of human epistemic side of the equation, not from the divine metaphysical side of the equation. Okay, let's move on. So Peter next tries to show why God's omniscience is incoherent. Here's what he says. What about God's infinite knowledge, his omniscience? Philosophically, this presents us with no less of a conundrum. And notice how he shifts from incoherence and contradiction to just conundrum, like uh -huh. we really don't know. But he says, leaving aside the highly implausible God idea that God knows all the facts in the universe, no matter 
how trivial or useless. If God knows all there is to know, then he knows at least as much as we know. But if he knows what we know, then this would appear to detract from his perfection. Why? Well, there are some things that we know that, if they were also known to God, would automatically make him a sinner, which is, of course, a contradiction within the concept of God. And he gives the example of like lust and envy, that if we have lustful or envious thoughts, God must have those too. But that would, that would lead to a contradiction with an all-perfect God. What do you think? That, to me, makes zero sense. That whole line of, of reasoning makes zero sense, that somehow the knowledge of something is equivalent to being that. Uh, do I know that Hitler was a genocidal maniac? Yeah. Does that mean I'm a genocidal maniac? <laughs> because I can know a truth about Hitler's uh, soul? I mean, to me, it doesn't follow at all that God understands what lust and envy are. Of course, of course God does. Does that make God lustful or envious? Absolutely not. I mean, it's a it's a virtual participation in the reality of something. That's what knowledge is. But to say that it's identical to being that, to know a sinner or know a sin is to is to be a sinner, I I, I just don't think that follows in any way. And go back to the, to the um, that line about you know that God knowing all the trivial facts in the universe. Here's where the being issue comes in. See. So I know a number of things. You know a number of things. That's happened because we've gone to school, we kept our eyes open, we've listened and taken in and we've assessed and all that. Yeah, our knowledge is, is passive and it's derivative from the world, right? If we think of God as, well, he's a, just this really big being and, and you know, um, I'm smart, you're smarter, Einstein is really smart, and then God is the smartest being of them all. As though God is kind of out there taking it all in. How many wings on fleas are there all over the universe? But that's the wrong way to think about it, because as Aquinas says, God doesn't know things passively and derivatively. He rather knows them into being. Things are because God knows them. See? So does God know how many fleas there are in the universe right now? Well, sure. Of course he does. He's omniscient. But it doesn't mean he's like, hmm, let me, one, two, three, four, five. You know what I'm saying? See, and that's why it seems trivial. Like, Why would God bother counting all the, but that's not the way to look at it. Think of the psalmist who says, can the one who made the eye himself not see? That's a very profound uh, observation. God, who is the ground of the being of all things, of course possesses within himself fully what's manifested in any and all perfection in the world. So something like an animal seeing. Well, God doesn't have an eye. That's true. But doesn't mean he's less than, it means he, his knowledge and being gives rise to all the perfections in the universe. That's how he knows everything, like from the inside. You know, it's a dumb analogy maybe, but the way I kind of know my own body, but not from the outside. Maybe I can look in the mirror and, you know, but I know my own body from the inside, you know, in this very intimate sort of way. That's how God knows the world, according to that kind of analogy. So, I mean, to me, this thing just doesn't follow at all. Well, next he goes from this knowledge of facts to knowledge of experience. I think what philosophers might call qualia, like subjective mm -hmm. conscious experience. He says, um, human beings know what it is like to inflict pain on others for pleasure's sake without any benefit. But if we know that, and God knows more than we do, then he must know about that experience too. You know, if we know what it's like to sin 
and God doesn't, that's a deficiency in God's omniscience. Does that kind of follow the same? Yeah, I, I, I just line? don't, I don't see what the problem is. Does God know what it's like to be a sinner? I, sure. I mean, that God can enter into the dynamics of, of a sinner. It doesn't make him a sinner. <laughs> that God knows the motivation and so on of a sinner. Yeah, sure. But I mean, you know what comes to my mind, Brandon, is a great mutual hero of ours, G.K. Chesterton and his famous hero, Father Brown, right? Who's famously innocent. But Father Brown has a very profound knowledge of the workings of the criminal mind, which is why he can solve crime so well. Where did he get that knowledge? From hearing confessions for many decades, right? So he's kind of moved into the mind of the sinner. Does anyone in the world think Father Brown is a terrible murderer and, and rapist and sinner? No, but he he understands their motivations and all that, but it doesn't affect his innocence. Well, God is like the supreme uh, Father Brown, if you want. I mean, of course, he knows us from the inside. He knows our motivations, but it doesn't make him wicked. I, I just, this thing doesn't make a lick of sense to me. Well, he sort of wraps up his line of reasoning with this paragraph. He says, a morally perfect being like God would never get enjoyment from causing pain to others. Therefore, God doesn't know what it is like to be human. In that case, he doesn't know what we know. But if God doesn't know what we know, then God is not all-knowing, and the concept of God is contradictory. God nonsense. No, that's, be... that's just nonsense. I mean, think of, see, sin. Now, let, let's talk not just about knowledge of what it's like to be a sinner. That's one thing. Like to be a sinner, it's like arguing, hmm, I can sin, God can't, that makes me better than God, right? But see how stupid that is, because sin in a way is like the, the square circle. Sin is like a form of non-being, it's an absence, it's a twisting of what ought to be straight, see? So you could say, yeah, God can't sin, as Aquinas says. Oh, I guess he's not all powerful. I can sin. See, but th that's the temptation of, of Satan, it seems to me. <laughs> oh, I'm superior to God because I have a twisted will. No, God, God is utterly innocent. God's, God's will is, is pure, unsullied. Good. I'm good for God. And uh, it's no limitation on God to say that, that he doesn't experience the twisting that I do indeed experience within me. But that's like a that's a modality of non-being. That's no limitation on God. That's that's part of God's glory that he can't feel it. But see, again, we're being led, misled by our language in a way. You know, oh, I mean, I have something God doesn't have. No, you have an absence that God doesn't have. You know, But none of that contradicts the fact that God is ipsum esse. God is the sheer active to be itself. Praise, thank God that he can't sin. All right. Well, after Peter Atteton's attempted takedown of this God of the philosophers, you know, this sort of what we can know about God through natural reason, he closes the New York Times article with a little anecdote from Blaise Pascal, the great uh, Catholic mathematician and, and, uh, and writer. He says, it is logical inconsistencies like these that led the 17th century French theologian Blaise Pascal to reject reason as a basis for faith and return to Bible and the Revelation. And Revelation, it is said that when Pascal died, his servant found sewn into the jacket these words: "God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars." Evidently, he says Pascal considered there was more wisdom and biblical revelation 
than in any philosophical demonstration of God's existence and nature or plain lack thereof. What do you make of that? Well, that settles it. Doesn't that just settles it? Let me give you a break. I mean, I love Pascal. He's terrific. I don't love that line of Pascal. That's not very Catholic to me. I love him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not throwing Pascal under the bus. He's great. But I don't like that line. And, and the tradition doesn't like it. But having said that, the Bible doesn't hold that God is, is all-knowing. The Bible doesn't hold that God is all-powerful. The Bible doesn't hold that God knows sinners from the inside. None of these problems would be solved by saying, oh, I'm for the Bible, not for philosophy. I mean, the great philosophers who reflected on these things, like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, were, were immersed in the world of the Bible. It came up out of the Bible. So I don't know what he's trying to solve by that appeal to Pascal. Um, what the Bible view is better, it's more coherent. The same issues would arise right out of the Bible. Um, so anyway, I, that to me is a red herring invoking Pascal. Bishop, I think what worries me about this whole article is how typical I think it is for yeah. what young people would get in like a yeah. philosophy 101 class in college. Like he yes. teaches at San Diego State. I'm thinking, okay, all of our high school Catholics graduate, they go, this is the first class, the first exposure they have, and they're going to be shell-shocked when they hear stuff like this. What do we do to prepare them to inoculate against this? Well, you know, when I was at the um, LA Congress last week and I gave this talk on, on the unaffiliated and so on, but I, I told the story of my uh, my nephew, who's now in his second year at MIT, right? Brilliant kid, math, science. And I asked him one time, did, did high school, the local public high school that he went to, did that prepare you well for MIT? And he said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I was ready day one to take the highest level engineering, you know, classes. Good. But then you know, what occurred to me right away was, are our kids prepared the same way when it comes to religion? Like do our, and I mean like our own Catholic schools, do they prepare our kids day one, for example, to deal with this guy? Let's say he were teaching, you know, religion or whatever it is, philosophy of religion. Would they be prepared to say, no, 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 professor. No, no, you got that wrong. No, no. Thomas Aquinas thought that through very carefully. And no, 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 no. We've looked at these things. Really, really smart people have talked about them. I, I think you're right. The vast majority of our kids wouldn't be equipped. How come? That's what bugs me. How come? How come we're, we're perfectly happy preparing them at high, high levels for MIT? Great, great. But we seem not to care about preparing them at high, high levels for what's most important, you know? So, you know, I just, I'm too old to be um, fussing around with this stuff anymore or making excuses. I think it's a, it's a disaster pastorally. And, and I think you're, you're absolutely right. An article like this reflects what probably a lot of our young people are taking in and they think, oh yeah, okay. I guess God is just an incoherent idea. So I'm going to move into the ranks of the nuns. And, you know, so many, I don't want to be, be too negative, but so many of our professors, the default position is, you know, religion is a lot, a lot of old nonsense and I've got a you know, free these kids of these old superstitions. But we did this to ourselves, Brandon. We did this to ourselves as a church. We dumbed it down. And uh, and then we allow this kind of stuff to take off. Um, so anyway, end of rant on that subject. <laughs> Well, that sound means it is time for our listener question. If you have a question, we want to hear it. Go to askbishopbarron.com, record your question on any device. Every episode, we pick at least one question from our listeners. Today, we hear from Sarah, who lives in Wyoming, 
And she has a question related to universities and what they teach there. So very apropos. Here's Sarah's question. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is Sarah from Wyoming. How successful do you think it would be to attempt to initiate at Catholic universities a concentration in evangelization that theology or religious studies-based majors could earn? Would that help to train people in evangelization? Would it be accepted at the universities? And what would an evangelization concentration look like? Thank you so much, and God bless your work. Yeah, good questions. Uh, I don't see why not. Uh, maybe, as you suggest, a kind of concentration within a degree in, in theology or religious studies or something. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, apologetics and theology, uh, maybe, you know, cultural studies as well. I think of uh, my hero, Cardinal George, you know, that knowing the culture is so key to an evangelizer. So not just you're immersed in the great thinkers of the theological tradition, but you know what's going on today. Yeah, I think as a concentration within uh, a, a program of, of theology or uh, religious studies. And I think it would be that combination, you know, the Bible in the one hand, the newspaper in the other, um, the great tradition on the, in one hand and, and the culture. Um, you know, Brandon, you know this, that um, our Word on Fire Institute in many ways is, is attempt to do just that. Not at university level, but we're trying to draw people into a careful study of, of all of these elements. And uh, the idea there is to turn them into evangelizers into the in the world. So, yeah, I mean, maybe look at the, the curriculum of the Word on Fire Institute and see what I think about uh, uh, what this would look like. So, yeah, I think the answer is we could do that and we should do it. And it would look like culture meets theology um, with a, a good practical uh, overtone as well, like how to do this, how to make this happen. So I think that's a, something we're thinking about. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Word on Fire show. Again, don't forget next week, next episode, we're going to get Bishop Barron's thoughts on his interview with Dr. Jordan Peterson. So look forward to that. If you haven't seen the Jordan Peterson interview yet, look for it online and maybe watch it before you listen to this upcoming episode. Also, join us as a patron by visiting wordonfireshow.com slash patron. Your support helps us get this episode to many more people. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.